All right, how's everybody? Okay. So, so I'm going to show you a clip just quickly, maybe, uh, that you'll be familiar with. Um, the sound quality in the first service wasn't very good, so that's my fault because I didn't find a very good YouTube clip, but uh, hopefully you're familiar enough. How many of you saw Forrest Gump, the movie? All right. So we're going to talk this morning, just kind of the title of my message is, Life is Like a Box of Chocolates. So um, we're just going to watch this to begin. So I want to, there's two metaphors in the movie. It's a great movie. There's two metaphors there that he's talking about, life being like a box of chocolates, but he also talks about shoes and kind of a metaphor for where you're going in life, right? And he says, I've I've worn all kinds of different kinds of shoes. Now, I don't know about you, um, I'm not a big fan of shoes. Like, as soon as I'm in the house, like, my shoes come off. Now, but see, here's the thing about feet. Like, if I have a, like a, a body image issue, <laughs> it's not my growing table muscle. It's my feet. Like, like, like I've got ugly feet. You know what I mean? So, but... But I don't like wearing shoes. And uh, so there's some people, and, and Josiah is the same way, man. Josiah kicks his shoes and socks off. It, it is anything we can do. My little boy is anything and everything we can do to keep track of the shoes or to keep the shoes on his feet. And, yeah, yeah he had little boots on his hands. I, I don't know if you saw him during worship. He's got the little boots on his hands walking around. I think he was trying to be a puppy. So he had four f- feet or whatever. But I don't think he had any shoes on his feet. And, you know, because putting, putting on a pair of shoes means you have to engage. It means you have to go someplace. You're going out. 
even if those shoes aren't comfortable. How many women like have high heel, like really, really high heel? Like, how do you walk in those things? Like, how do you do stairs in those things? <laughs> like, I never understood that. Or how many, I remember there was a Bill Cosby, uh, like comic thing that we listened to on a record. That's, that's giving away my age. Like, it was a Bill Cosby record. How many of you have ever had a Bill Cosby record? Uh, and he talks about, there was this little thing he did. He called them the cruel shoes. So he talked about how his mom took him and fit him into a pair of shoes that didn't fit. And I think maybe he was making a joke that they were, they were so poor or something they couldn't afford a good pair of shoes. And I just remember him talking about those shoes felt like a pair of vice grips. <laughs> and so a few years ago, I, I had a dream. And God, God will speak to you in your dreams, but not every dream that you get is a message from God. We know that, right? And God speaks to me in my dreams. Now, here's the thing about dreams is sometimes we, we try to interpret those dreams. And I don't know, maybe you're one of these people that you can just, if, if you're into that, maybe you can have a dream and you can interpret it in like five minutes. And then you just know it and you go on. And, and, and that's good for you. <laughs> I've just found out that usually when I try to interpret my dreams, and I'll give you an example in a minute. Usually if I try to interpret my dreams, I interpret them wrong if I do it too quickly. I just, I get it wrong. I have a journal, you know, I keep track of this stuff. Now, if I really want to misunderstand my dream, I send it to a prophetic person <laughs> who specializes in dream interpretation. I'm just, it's just been my life experience. Maybe I don't know the right prophetic people. That, that, that's very, very possible. But I've had a few dreams that have stayed with me and spoken to me for years. I remember one particular dream that I had that I, I knew was very significant, I knew was very important, and I wrestled with that dream to understand that dream for years. And honest to God, it was seven years later. I guess I'm just a slow learner, Jess. I, I guess just, you know, some of us are more thick-headed than the rest. I'm more thick-headed than the rest of you. I'll leave you all out of it. But Seven years later, I wake up, and I, I had the understanding of the dream, and it was speaking to me where I was at. And if I really want to mess up my dream, I go buy one of those dream interpretation books that has, you know, all the symbols figured out. This means this car means your ministry, airplane, whatever. So I guess if you get in a crash, that's not a good sign. The house that you grew up in means your psychological house. Are you with me? I know none of you probably ever do this. I actually never bought one of those books, but I would go to Barnes and Noble and buy the coffee and sit there and flip through it, you know, with my notebook and try and interpret my dream. If I really want to mess it up, I'll do that. So a few years ago, actually it was, it was 2005. It was after the, the first time I had gone to Kenya. And when I was in Kenya, um, for the first time, it was the first time I'd spoken to a really, really large crowd, several, uh, uh, thousand people. And, so that was a big deal for me. And I get home from that trip and I have this dream. And in this dream, I'm getting ready to get on another large stage where I'm going to minister to several thousands. And I'm trying to find my Bible, which is like a common anxiety dream for me. I'm going somewhere to preach and I can't find my Bible. And so I'm looking all over for my Bible. And what I find is I find my, my, one of my very first Bibles I got after I began to really study the Bible. The, one, the first one that I really marked up. It was the only one that I could find. And I was like, I don't want my old Bible. I need my new Bible in the dream. And I have all this anxiety. 
And as I'm looking down at my Bible, I look down and I, and I used to have this old pair of tennis shoes. Anybody have an old pair of tennis shoes that they're just they're comfortable and they've been around for like 10, 15, 20 years and your wife hates them and they stink and you need to throw them out. But there's just something about that old pair of shoes and how comfortable they fit. Okay, so last year, nodding your head, so that's a good thing. At least I got one companion in, in, in the group. And, and I look down, and I'm wearing my old, comfortable pair of tennis shoes. Now, you've got to understand that in Africa, when they go to church, it's a big deal. And they still, to this day, they're, they're starting to adopt. It's amazing how different cultures will adopt American customs. They're beginning to become more and more casual about the way they dress, at least in Kenya, about the way that they dress to church. But back then, especially, you dress to the hilt. And so uh, you, you wear a suit. So Scott went with me, I think a couple other trips, Scott Reed, and I think he had, I don't think he owned a suit. So I think he had to buy a suit just, just to go. All, all Scott has is like black and gray t-shirts. But, but he, but he had, but they're comfortable, right? And and so he had to buy a suit to, to come with me. And so here I am sitting in my suit and I look down and I've got these old crummy tennis shoes on. And that's like really causing me anxiety. And I'm supposed to step up on this big stage, and I don't want to step up on the big stage because I don't want everybody to see my crummy shoes. And so I wake up, and immediately I put an interpretation to that dream. And this was, you know, this was ten years ago. This is when the, the prophetic movement was full steam, and everybody's word was, God's doing a new thing. How many of you remember that? You know, don't remember the, the former things. Uh, forget the things of old. God is doing a new thing, right? So I wake up, and I immediately interpret my dream in light of that prophetic season that we were in. And so I think, oh, God is speaking to me about I need to get the new thing. I've got the old Bible. I've got the old shoes. I know. Let's use scripture. Shoes in the Bible represent the gospel of peace, because in Ephesians chapter six, when you put on the full armor of God, the shoes represent the gospel of peace. So it's about my preaching. And it's old. And I have anxiety around it. So it's like, I've got to find the new thing. So what do I do? I launch out and I go, okay, I've got, I've got to find some new books. Maybe listen to some different messages. Maybe spend, you know, 10 hours, uh, uh, one day just praying and praying in the spirit or something so that this new revelation will come so that, so that I can, I can stand in this, this great platform that God's given me. I mean, I had it all figured out. You know, this big thing was this new big platform God was going to take me to. But in order to get there, I had to lose the let go of the old and receive the new. And, and all my prophetic friends would have agreed with me about that interpretation, especially back then. And here's our problem, because you see, oftentimes when God speaks to us in a dream, it's because we're not getting something in our waking life. Job talks about that. In, in like Job 36 there, that, that, that God speaks in many different ways and that he'll, he'll give us instruction in the night season in our dreams. But here's the thing about dreams. Oftentimes God's speaking in a dream because in your waking life, you're missing the message. And our problem is with the way that we interpret it is we interpret what is coming to us in the dark in light of what we know in the day. And that's our problem. Because what we do is we interpret it in view of what we think we know. And if we actually knew, we wouldn't be getting the dream. Does that make sense? So one of the most dangerous, one of the most dangerous things you could do is try to interpret your dream. 
Yet we have to try to interpret it, right? I'm just saying don't be in a hurry. Because I'll tell you, I'll tell you what the message was. The, the message was actually, the message was that those, those shoes kind of represented for me, not preaching the gospel, those shoes kind of represented for me the way I walk through life. The way I carry myself. And see, my problem is, is I was beginning with a framework because of the anxiety that was in the dream. There, there was anxiety in this dream. So I'm beginning with a framework that says there's something wrong with me and there's something I need to change. See, that's the unconscious presupposition. And so I begin to look at the dream in light of what do I need to change? When the reality is, is, is you know, kind of going through that season of my life, um, I still wasn't comfortable in my own shoes. I loved those shoes. In any other platform, I'd be able to look at those shoes and say, these are great shoes. If I'm just relaxing around the house, they're the shoes that I put on. See, see, in that context, I look at those shoes and I say, those shoes are great. But when I think about it in a public context, all of a sudden, now there's something wrong. See, that's the problem. I wasn't comfortable enough in my own skin in public. So I had to look for a new me in order to step into a New platform. Because the old me just didn't quite cut it. And actually the message of the dream was, I think, you need to learn to be comfortable in your own shoes. So what causes us to not be comfortable in our own shoes. I, I want to suggest to you that it starts very, very young in life. So I'm going to go after one of those cultural things that we do. It's, it, it's, it's so ingrained in us as a cultural thing. It's a value that we have. See, see, I, I, want, to, I want to challenge. Can I, can I do that this morning? You don't have to agree with me. You can walk out of here with all your exceptions. Because I've noticed anytime, anytime we challenge a, a value that we honor, anytime I do, uh, I can almost hear them in my head now. But it used to be maybe I would challenge a, a cultural paradigm, something that we valued, something that we believed was absolutely true. And I would challenge it and I would bring up counterexamples. Here, here's why that doesn't work. And, and after the message, I'd have, you know, invariably somebody would come up to me and say, yes, but I still think, and then give me the counterexample to what I said. So I just want to let you know ahead of time, I know what you're going to do in your head. I'm going to start addressing this, and because it's a cultural value, because it's something that we honor, probably you might have an emotional charge that goes off inside you. And you're going to want to defend it, and so your mind might begin to go to all the counterexamples, the yeah, buts, about what I'm saying. <laughs> I so want to say, but we know what comes out of butts, but, but I won't say that because, you know, I don't want to be offensive. <laughs> Ready? Here it is. And, and we, here, here it is. Here it is. We say this. I heard this. We say this to our kids. We say this to our kids. It starts young. You can be anything you want to be in life. How many of you heard that one growing up? 
How many of you used that one? How many of you used that one in a good way from a pure intention to try to encourage your kid to, to, to develop their potential? You can be anything you want to be in life, right? And I think, I think that's our intent. I, I think our intent is to ingrain a, a positive outlook in our children, which there's nothing wrong with a positive outlook. Obviously, we want to have that. I think we want to uh, put a sense of resiliency inside them so that if they come up against obstacles or they come up against trials in their life, or if somebody tells them they can't do something, because, listen, there, there's always going to be critics. There's always going to be naysayers. There's always going to be people who actually aren't in the arena or aren't in the game themselves that sit there and criticize, like I was doing Sunday night. Okay, not too many Bronco fans in here. See, I never actually played football, but it's real easy to sit back and say, why did the coach do that? I felt a little bit better about it because I was over Rob and Tiffany, and Rob's a really, really, really good football coach. So if I can get him to agree with me, then I feel better about being critical. I feel really a lot better about being critical about something that I don't do myself. So how many, you know, but, but life is like that. If, if you're going to get in there, you're going to have the critics in your life. You're going to have the naysayers. You're going to have the ones that aren't in the game who are going to tell you how you're doing it wrong. And so we don't want our kids to be programmed by that. So we say, you can be anything you want to be in life, right? Those are all our good positive intentions. But here's the problem. Is it really true? Is it really true that you could be anything you want to be in life? Is it really, really true that, that our children could be anything they want to be in life? Well, let's, let's see. Let's say your child wants to be a professional a- athlete. Or in the case of my kids, now my kids are going to be short. It's just a given. They're like in the fourth, third percentile. Third percentile. That means 97% of the kids their size are taller than them. That means like 5'6 would be an achievement. <laughs> and in my family, I found out, here's these, these cultural things, right? I found out in my family, height is a value. Like, who's the tallest in the family is like, like an achievement, right? And I'm looking at my boys and I'm thinking, yeah, let's, let's look into soccer or, or jockeying, riding horses. I mean, the reality is, if you're not physically gifted, incredibly physically gifted, you, can, you can't be that. Which means the truth is, you can't be anything you want to be. Or what about this? You guys know who he is? Okay, all the geeks, all the nerds in the group are nodding their heads. The rest of y'all can take a picture and Google it or something. Because I don't know, because I'm not a geek, you know, so. What if you want to be an astrophysicist? Well, you know, maybe you didn't come prepackaged with a 180. IQ. Or maybe you're just like me and you just, you know, math just didn't work for you for whatever reason. Right, Tiffany? (laughs) Tiffany was my tutor through my college level math class. I about drove her to drink. (laughs) 
What if you want to be a surgeon, but what if you don't have good hand-eye coordination? What if you don't have really, really, really good fine motor skills? And here's, here's one I wanted to be. You want to be a rock star. It's, it's one of the things, uh, when, when, when we went to Pueblo's Got Talent and sat there that final night with all the finalists, and these are the finalists. These are like the best that, that, that tried out, right? And I'm like, man, they're, they're all awesome. Like one would stand up and I'd say, I'm going to vote for that one. And then the next one would stand up and I'd say, no, I'm going to vote for that one. Because we had to vote at the end, you know, who's the best? So I didn't vote for a singer because, you know, I, I voted for the guy that did the Rubik's Cube because I just thought, man, that, now that's talent. <laughs> I did it behind his back like in 10 seconds or so. It was amazing. But I realized, you know, musical ability is like, like, wow, a dime a dozen. Like really good, really quality musical Talent is like in abundance. And so how many breaks do you have to have? How many people do you have to know? How many things have to go right for you in life if you're going to become a rock star, even make it in the music industry in a way that can pay your bills? But you can be anything you want to be. So, let me back up. Yeah, we'll leave it on him for a while. Here's our problem. What happens when you have expectations for life? Maybe you don't want to be, maybe you, you weren't the kind that you, you aspired to professional athletics or, you know, maybe you just wanted to have a good marriage and family or maybe you just wanted to, have a job that you enjoyed or whatever. But what happens when life does not live up to your expectations? There's a scripture in Proverbs that says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. And so which one of us has it? I mean, I'm just, you know, you don't have to raise your hand. Maybe I should let you take the podium if it's you. But which one of us hasn't ever had to experience a process or deal with some kind of disappointment in life? Which one of us, if we've lived any kind of years at all, we haven't woken up It's in some context of our life and said, if only uh, I would have done this differently. Or, or did you ever just wake up in life and think, man, this isn't where I saw myself. Ten, ten years ago, this isn't where I saw myself. Or when I started this, if I'd have known this is how it was going to end up, I wouldn't have signed up for this. And I've, I've had to process this even in ministry, because even in ministry, we have, we have certain uh, ideas of what makes you successful and what makes you unsuccessful. And the most obvious one is obviously the size of your church. How many people do you have coming to your church? How many services do you have? How big's your budget? How big's your building? And, and, then and then people judge you uh, based on those kind of standards, and, and it becomes, you know, challenging. And then in our movement, we make it harder on ourselves, we make it harder on ministers, because, you know, we're kind of the signs and wonders people, or the mystical people, or whatever. So it's not just enough, how many people do you have coming, but how, how, many, how, how many, 
Are the gifts of the Spirit in operation? How many people have been healed? How many miracles did you have? How many prophetic words did you have? How many treasure hunts did you go on? Uh, how many mystical experiences did you have? Well, I was in heaven yesterday. And, and <laughs> do, do you see what I'm saying? And so, so we have all these things and that we begin to put out there and we begin to say, this is what, uh, in order for me to be fulfilled, this is what life has to look like. So just, just uh, you know, I, I did this thing this morning. I, I went through and I looked, what are some of the best-selling books in Christendom right now? Because I don't, I don't read. I've I got a confession to make. I'll be transparent this morning. And, you know, I have a confession to make. I don't read a lot of contemporary Christian books because I, I don't enjoy them. And so I haven't been to a Christian bookstore or I haven't looked on ChristianBooks.com for years to find out what's the latest greatest so i don't know what's out there maybe some of you know what's out there but i thought i'm just going to google best-selling christian books and much to my surprise the same books that are bestsellers today are the same books that are bestsellers back when i kind of stopped reading that stuff so let me just give you some of the ones on the list the purpose driven life number one finding your purpose in life winning the battle for your mind joyce myers Here's another one by Joyce Myers, and I would love to talk to her about this, but living beyond your emotions. Who wants to? I just want to be happy, but I got to, you can't be happy if you're beyond your emotions. I just, that title made no sense to me. Living beyond your emotions, controlling your feelings so that they don't control you and you end up in therapy. All right, just saying. Sorry. <laughs> Here's, this, is, this is a common theme. This is Joel Osteen. Think better, live better. Think better, live better. A victorious life begins in your mind. Here's another one by Joel. Become a better you. <laughs> Seven keys to improving your daily life. Isn't that interesting? So I wonder, what, I wonder what's selling in the self-help. Like, not to Christians, but, but what's in the self-help sections. And you know, much to my surprise, it's the same books that were bestsellers today that were bestsellers however many years ago. And I have every single one of these books on my bookshelf. I can name you the author without even having to look it up. And not only are they on my bookshelf, but I've read them. I've, I've highlighted them. I've taken notes from them. I might have even taught a little bit out of them. First one, seven habits of highly effective people. Here's one that I'm still working on. How to win friends and influence people. I'm in the remedial class on that one. How about this one, Napoleon Hill? Think and grow rich. Rich, pet, rich dad, poor dad. James Allen wrote a book, As a Man Thinketh. And my all-time favorites, see who knows the author on this one, See You at the Top. Anybody know who wrote that one? Zig Ziglar. <laughs> what do all those things have in common? They all begin with a presupposition that life isn't good right now. They all begin with a presupposition that you have to do something to make your life better. To be successful. To get out of life what life is supposed to give you. So I remember going through a season in my life and, you know, one of the things that, that I really emphasize, I really have a heart for hurting people. And so one of the things that we've really emphasized for, forever since we've been going and since I've been in ministry is how can we help people who are hurting emotionally? 
And so, you know, I've been, I, really, it's probably no exaggeration to say I've been to like every kind of training that there is on inner healing, deliverance, renewing your mind, all that stuff, positive thinking, all that stuff, right? Teach it, train it. And, and, and I just, you know, wake up in this season of my life and, and I'm just hurting on the inside. I, I just, like I have this emotional pain. And so you have this emotional pain. You've got to figure out where to go with it. You've got to figure out what to do with it. And when you're an expert, you, you kind of expert on yourself. You really shouldn't do that, but you kind of do it anyway. And so I remember just, I, I couldn't pinpoint what was going on. And so finally I just get into this place with, with God where I'm like, where I'm like just, you know, in this, in this place, in the presence of God. And, and I allow that pain to come up in the presence of the Lord. And I'm like, Lord, what, what is this? What is this pain about? And here's what comes to mind. I'm going to read, read you this parable from the words of Jesus. Matthew 18, 23 through 25. It says, Therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And as he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. And since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him and said, be patient with me and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him and canceled the debt and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. And he grabbed him and began to choke him and say, pay back what you owe me. And his fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I'll pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. And when the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and told their master everything that had happened. Okay, there we go. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. And so when I'm in the presence of God and I'm asking about this pain that's in my life, I see a picture of me grabbing this person. It wasn't one of you. There's nobody in my family. Nobody I knew. Grabbing this person by the throat and saying, pay me what you owe me. Now, I deliberately left the context out of this, but those of you that are Bible scholars in here, can you tell me what the context of this parable is about? It's about forgiveness, right? Because Peter asks, how many times should I forgive somebody who sinned against me? And so the point that Jesus is making is that God's forgiveness is extravagant to us. And then we go out to people that we don't want to forgive and we grab them by the throat and we say, pay me what you owe me, right? But, but I'm, and so I'm looking inside myself and I'm thinking, who am I upset with? Because I really do. I mean, if that's, that, that's, that's inner healing 101, right? I mean, like, you gotta forgive other people if you wanna be well on the inside. And I, and I've tried to keep short accounts and frankly, I haven't had a lot of issues lately with people. And so I'm like, who am, who am I demanding payment from? And immediately the answer came to me and it was like, Aaron, you're not demanding payment from an individual, from a person. You've got life by the throat because you think life is supposed to be your servant and life hasn't paid you everything that you were supposed to get or that you thought you were supposed to get. 
And I realized that throughout my life, I had experienced disappointment after disappointment. Small disappointments, large disappointments, whatever the case may be. But the Bible says hope deferred makes the heart sick. So if you have an expectation and that expectation doesn't come to pass, you end up with something in your heart. And here's what I'm discovering. You can settle things on the outside and still not have things settled on the inside. You can get in an argument with someone who's significant to you. You can get in a fight with them and you can make peace between your partner, but not resolve the issue of pain that's in your heart. Because we really haven't been given the tools. I don't know. I wasn't really given the tools to know how to do that. But the same thing's true of disappointments. You can have expectations. You can have something as simple as, I think there's going to be a lot of people at this meeting. I can only speak about myself. I don't know what your disappointments are. But maybe you think you're going to go and, and, and you're going to have a healing service and a hundred people are going to show up for the healing service and God's going to move and twelve people show up for the healing service and I don't even know if the Holy Spirit was in the building. I'm just talking on my own experience. And so that's a disappointment. So you keep working harder on the externals, trying to get the, trying to get life to serve, trying to get life to obey, trying to get life to work out. But what do you do with those disappointments on the inside? See, if you don't know how to resolve those things, not just externally, but you know how to resolve those things internally, then what happens is, is that sickness gets into your heart and that sickness just grows until eventually you wake up and there's pain and you've got to do something with the pain. And so mostly what we do is we try to numb it or run away from it. Or project it. You're the reason I'm unhappy. You're the reason I'm in pain. The government's the reason I'm unhappy. The the church is the reason I'm unhappy. My job is the reason I'm unhappy. Whatever. Because we're still trying to fix it out here instead of deal with it in here. And so I realized I woke up to season in my life and I thought, I thought, yeah, you know, in, in a lot of ways, all these various different things didn't add up the way I thought they were supposed to add up in life. And because I didn't get those things, it's like, it's like here I was at a season of my life and I, and I have life by the throat and I'm demanding from life and I'm saying, life, you're going to pay me what you owe me. <laughs> And when we do that, we end up in a self-imposed prison house. So I want to invite you to look at that parable differently. I, I want you to invite you to look at it. You know, the guy's coming and the, the he, ten, what was it, 10,000 bags of gold or something? So like there's all this abundance that has been freely given. Freely, that you don't have to pay back. Like, think about it. He actually had that money. But somehow managed to miss the abundance that he had been given and began to look at the small things that he was lacking. Maybe it's not just about abundance of forgiveness being given. Maybe it's about abundance of life being given. Maybe it's about abundance of blessing being given. But you can't enjoy the blessing because you're so busy looking at what you think you're supposed to have that you didn't get. And you couple that with a spirit of entitlement, which seems, in my view, to be growing in this culture. And maybe it's because we're told, you can have anything you want in life. You can be anything you want in life. It's a lie! 
And so maybe I want a a really nice, shiny-looking pair of shoes, but maybe what I'm really best suited for is my old sneakers. And maybe if I just put on my old sneakers and become comfortable in my own skin and just let life happen... And I just show up. I mean, that's, you, you know, I mean, the movie Forrest Gump, I mean, I can't help it, but he just showed up. He didn't have a plan. He didn't have, and there were things that didn't go right. You think about the relationship with the, the girl that he loved. I mean, there were things that didn't go right for him in his life, but he just showed up. And he just did what he thought was the right thing to do at the time. And as you're watching this, There's like all this significance because he was willing to put on whatever pair of shoes it was that he had at the time and just show up. Wasn't content to just stay home barefoot and hide his ugly feet from the world. Those aren't mine. I'm not that old. See, maybe instead of saying you can be anything you want to be, maybe what we should be looking at is what did you bring into the world? Maybe, maybe instead of demanding that life be our servant and pay us what we think that life owes us. Maybe we're supposed to show up as the servant. Maybe, maybe we're supposed to show up as a servant and, and, and maybe life, maybe just life in general, all the different experiences that we have, maybe in all those experiences, the good ones and the bad ones, the, 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 the ones that we wanted and the ones that we didn't want, it, maybe somewhere in all those experiences there are bags of gold. Maybe all around us there are bags of gold. Maybe in in all the people that are around us there are bags of gold. And maybe life is like a feast. Maybe when, when, when Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is like a man who threw a feast, maybe He's not talking about something otherworldly. Maybe he's talking about this life. Maybe, maybe he's talking about entering fully into life and, 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 and not demanding from life that it, that it meets some preconceived idea of what you think you're supposed to have or you think you're supposed to get so that you wake up in a prison and you wake up in pain and you wake up miserable. Maybe, maybe we should just get it, put our shoes on, old shoes, high heels, good shoes, whatever they may be. Maybe we're just supposed to put our shoes on and get engaged and get out there and, and maybe we're just supposed to show up at the feast. I talked about this last week, but I can't get away from it. Jesus said it's better to enter life maimed. He didn't say it's better to enter heaven. He he said it's better to enter life maimed than to not enter life at all. It's better to enter life blind than to not enter life at all. When the master had a feast, those that were trying to make everything perfect didn't come to the feast. So he says, go into the highways and the byways. And we turned it into an evangelistic thing. But it's not an evangelistic thing. It's just about life. We're not trying to get the good and the bad and the maimed and the blind and the crippled into an evangelistic meaning so we could get all of them healed and we could get all of them saved. That's not what Jesus was talking about. That's not what Jesus was thinking about. He wasn't coming from a 21st century evangelism model when he was talking about that. Maybe he's just saying life is like that feast. But if you're so busy trying to make it perfect, you won't show up. Maybe he's telling us, you know what, you're going to get maimed. You're going to get maimed, but it's better to enter life maimed. 
You're going to get hurt, but do life anyway. You're, you're going to be blind sometimes. You're, you're not going to have a clue where you're going. You're not going to have any idea what's coming around the next corner, but enter life anyway. I don't have it all sorted out. There's good and there's bad in me. And, and the Bible says, go out and invite the bad as well as the good and let them sit down at the feast. Because our Father is so good, He causes it to rain on the just and on the unjust. Maybe you're a little crippled. Maybe life's crippled you and you can't walk it quite right. And so you're embarrassed because you can't live the life to the way that you're supposed to live it. But Jesus invited you to the feast. Maybe you've been maimed because of the loss of a job or the loss of a business or the loss of a dream or the loss of an idea or the loss of a child or the loss of a spouse. You've been maimed. Come to the feast anyway. Maybe you're blind. You don't know where you're going. Come to the feast anyway. It's an abundant feast. And the thing about this feast is you get to be both a guest and you get to be a server. <laughs> so what if we changed our paradigm? Because I realized, here's the thing I realized, Aaron, you, you've, been, you've been doing self-help things, you've been doing you know, Christian things, you've been working faith, and, and all these different things from a perspective of trying to make life behave. And i got news for you, life doesn't behave. And so we take the life that we have because it's not behaving and we throw it into prison. We lock it up and lock it away. And so maybe our desired outcome shouldn't be, I want to have, I want to have this working this way so I get what I want, damn it. <laughs> Told you I was going to be transparent. Sorry, mom. <laughs> she, she would have washed my mouth out with soap, I'm just saying. Just wanted to see if you were listening. I saw some of you drifting off to sleep. What if instead of doing that, we just said, I'm going to let life unfold in abundance the way God is giving it to me. And I'm going to find the abundance that's inside of me. And I'm going to give it away. So you want to be a singer. Maybe nobody thinks you can sing. Sing anyway. Sing anyway. Maybe you're an artist and people think your art is stinks. Paint anyway. Get your shoes on. Show up in your shoes. Do you. What if we approach life, we said, I'm going to enjoy the abundance that's there. And I'm going to give all the abundance that's inside of me. And let the chips fall where they may. Not everybody's going to love you. Not everybody's going to agree with you. Not everybody's going to celebrate you. Come to the feast anyway. Give us your gifts. Give us your gifts. Sing your songs. Write your books. Tell your stories. Share your wisdom. Share your encouragement. Share your prayers. Share your sorrows. Share your hurts. Share your vulnerabilities. Share your mistakes. 
Let people see your ugly feet, maybe they'll feel better about theirs. (laughs) And you just gave them a wonderful gift. Instead of demanding from life, just admit, life's a feast, life's good. You start doing that, everything takes on new meaning. The grass gets greener, the sky gets bluer, music gets more enjoyable. You realize all of this is part of the feast. And you're going to get maimed, you're going to get crippled. Better to enter life maimed. It's Communion Sunday. I think, you know, in this Christmas season that we celebrate the Word became flesh. Theologians for years have tried to decide why did the Word become flesh? And there's one verse, actually, I've read all kinds of theological treatises about why the Word became flesh, but there's one verse in the Bible that tells us. It says, you shall call his name Emmanuel, meaning God with us. And maybe the reason Jesus was in such conflict with the Pharisees and those who kept the law was maybe because life doesn't work that way. Life doesn't work if you can figure out all the laws and all the things you need to do in order to choose life and make good things happen, then good things will come. You know, maybe it's not that God blesses you if you're obedient and curses you if you're disobedient. Maybe that's not what he's after. Maybe the incarnation is... Just God saying, I'm showing up (laughs) to the feast. I'm showing up to do life with you. And as he did life, he was rejected. Falsely accused. He was denied by his closest, one of his closest friends. He was betrayed with a kiss he was misunderstood he was celebrated and ultimately he was mocked and he was crucified and maybe he's just showing us how to show up for the feast how to go through life and experience all those different things And celebrate the goodness of His Father and the goodness of humanity while sharing the gift that He was indiscriminately to the world. And showing us that even at that, you're going to get beat up, rejected, mocked, lied about, betrayed, and killed. And so maybe that bread really is the bread of life. And maybe that cup really is the cup of life. And maybe the communion meal isn't so much about getting right with God. Maybe it's just agreeing to come to the feast. To say, I'm going to partake and I'm going to do life. And God, through Jesus, showed up.
and did life with me. So I'm going to turn the rest of the service over to Nick and we're going to receive the Lord's Supper. Powerful, powerful. Stand to your feet, please. Stand to those shoes that you wore to this house to receive such a powerful word today. Take it in. Take your hands. Put them across your heart. Boy, from the very get-go this morning when we walked in here for prayer, there was such a felt of the, the love of the Lord, joy of the Lord. And this powerful word this morning, we all know the sacrifice that Jesus went through for us. But as Aaron said, let's enjoy the feast. Let's take a hold of the feast that is within us. So put your hands tightly against your chest and your heart. And I want you just to feel that depth, the depth of the love of the Lord. Feel deep and take a hold of what is fully inside of you. That feast, the abundance, just overflowing feasts. As you partake this morning, come to the table and take a hold of the bread and take the cup and just receive the feast. Just receive the feast. Take your time and just partake and feel and know what is in you and fully there.